Well, this morning you can once again open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. You know, the interruptions, the key events, they've been nonstop, not to mention the ever-changing COVID situation. So we've needed to address many issues from the pulpit, give a biblical perspective, and we'll probably have to do that again. But I figured if we don't hunger down and get back to Colossians, we're never going to finish going through this letter. We started our verse-by-verse exposition, I don't know, sometime in 2019, I think, right? But we've got to get through. So today I figured, rain or shine, we're going to get back to, we're going to finish Colossians chapter 3, even start chapter 4, and make our way to to finishing up our verse-by-verse time through this letter. So today that's Colossians 3. And since it's been, I guess, a little while, you'll need again a, a little brief note on the flow of Colossians 3 up to this point. As Paul gets past the halfway mark of this letter, he starts to address our newness in Christ. By faith, we've died to the old self. We've risen to the new self. The old self is gone. The new self has been put on. And now we are to live out the salvation that God has worked in us. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul fleshes out what that should look like in the church. If our new life in Christ can't impact and transform how fellow Christians live with one another, then the church would be over before it started. So Paul instructs how believers ought to live with one another in the church. But then Paul transitions from new life in the church to new life in the home. In the church, we must not just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. We, we have to show our, our genuine faith. Otherwise, our corporate witness would be hamstrung. Who wants to follow just a bunch of hypocrites? But that is true on the small scale as well. In the home, each individual believer's testimony is on the line by how they live at home. And if the gospel cannot prove powerful enough to transform the home, what, what hope is there really for a whole nation? But thankfully, the gospel does have this power, and this home renovation is played out time and time again. And Paul writes now at the end of chapter 3 to tell the church what this home renovation should look like. Now, here's how the gospel should impact and transform how you live, even in the home. What should life be like in the home? Now that we've sworn our, our ultimate allegiance to Christ as our Lord. Well, we saw in verses 18 through 19, he addresses husbands and wives, how the gospel should impact marriage. Then verses 20 and 21, we also saw he addresses parents and children, how Christ as Lord should transform that relationship. That's where we left off last time. Now, chapter 3, verse 22, and it continues into chapter 4, verse 1. It's the final part of what's known as the household code And here Paul addresses the relationship between slaves and masters. In the ancient world, believe it or not, slavery was an absolute pervasive reality. And slaves were part of just about every household. Without condoning slavery, the Apostle Paul writes to show how even this dynamic, that between slave and master, should be radically reoriented under Christ. And this teaching still has implications for our day and age. Our aim is simply to go through these five verses, understand them, and and apply them to life today. 
Before we get to our text, though, I wanted to give a bit of an extended introduction on this issue. Because I know whenever the Bible talks about slavery, people have questions and even some concerns. But these are resolved with the right biblical background and perspective. So I figured let's spend a little extra time up front and an extended introduction to give you some of that biblical background and perspective on the issue of slavery. So I want to start by giving you a little picture of slavery in the ancient world. If you take 18th century slavery in America and you read that into the Bible when the Bible speaks of slavery, you're going to get things wrong. Granted, both forms of slavery are wrong, but they're not the same. And our goal is simply to understand what's in the mind of the biblical writers as they think of slavery or reference slavery. What was it like back then? That's what we first need to think of in the, the first century. Slavery in the ancient world was ubiquitous. Is part of the very fabric of the Roman Empire. Vast numbers of prisoners of war were imprisoned and then enslaved during Rome's conquests. And by the first century, the, the slave population of Rome had reached 12 million. One in five persons in Rome were slaves. In fact, there's a proposal in the Roman Senate. They wanted to make slaves wear distinct clothing, but it was struck down lest the slaves learn how numerous they were. Now, speaking of clothing, though, walking down the street, you would not know a slave just by looking at them. They looked normal. They dressed normal. They didn't look much different. Slavery in Rome was not race-based like slavery in America. The slave population was diverse. And also, slaves could be found in every profession, every walk of life. There were imperial slaves, temple slaves, agricultural slaves, domestic slaves, industrial slaves. Your child's tutor or school teacher could be a slave. Your doctor or physician could be a slave. Slavery had just become absolutely ingrained in the Roman economy and society. The status and treatment of slaves largely depended on the benevolence of one's master. Mileage varied. Some were good, fair, and just. Others were not. Slaves hoped for fair treatment, but legally in Rome, they had no rights. In the Greek world before, Aristotle defined slaves as living property. He said, quote, the slave is a living tool and the tool a lifeless slave, end quote. The slaves were legally subject to the absolute will of their master. Now, as you can imagine, given the depravity in man's hearts, this led to many abuses, but it did also allow for the release of slaves. Master could release a slave at will, and slaves actually could also purchase their own freedom if they saved enough. So these are just some of the facts of slavery in the first century Roman world. The New Testament doesn't explain slavery. It's just an accepted widespread aspect of society. It was an entrenched reality that you could neither ignore or change. The writers of the New Testament then just address slavery as as a fact of life. It's what we see reflected in our text in Colossians. And Paul simply knows that as a fact, slaves are going to be part of most ancient households. So as he seeks to explain how new life in Christ should transform the household, It's only natural he would have a word for slaves and a word for masters. 
Now, we'll still get to our text shortly. I want to take this extended introduction even a little bit further because people still wonder, does the Bible endorse slavery? I mean, Paul in our text is going to tell slaves in their household to obey their masters. Is that the same as condoning slavery? And the answer to that is no. And I want to explore that for a little bit here. Now, first, you need to appreciate all the ways the New Testament writers undermined ancient slavery. You see this in the very fact that the Apostle Paul addresses slaves at all. That means Paul assumed that the slaves would be assembled with the rest of the church in Colossae as they gathered to meet to hear this letter read to the whole church. They were there. He spoke to them as equal members of the church, not as things or objects with no rights. Indeed, he put demands on their behavior as willing individuals. He's commanding them. He's treating them like morally responsible persons who are capable of right and wrong choices and will be held accountable like everybody else. In addition, though, the social lines of slave and master in Rome, they were not going to be changed anytime soon in society. But don't forget, was it not the Apostle Paul who showed how in Christ, those distinctions in the church are erased? In Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And already so much of what the New Testament says about slaves is, is countercultural and radical. But I know some still ask, why didn't the New Testament go even further? Why didn't the New Testament writers prescribe social revolution? And that's a fair question. And of course, Christianity was meant to be revolutionary from the start, but you can't forget what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. And he aimed to start a spiritual revolution, not a material revolution. He came to transform the world, not merely reform the world. You know, there were countless social evils in that day and age in Roman society, I'm sure you would understand. There still are. But why didn't Jesus direct his disciples to do something about them? He never did. Ever wonder about that? Why didn't he raise up activists who were more concerned about overthrowing the evil, immoral Roman Empire? Well, let's say he did that. And, and then what? You know, what would they replace Rome with? You see, if if mankind's soul sickness and spiritual death were not addressed, they would just end up replacing it with just a new evil, immoral empire, which is what happened, by the way, after Rome fell. Just nothing changed. No, but Christ intended for his church to turn this world upside down over time, but, but not naturally, rather supernaturally, through the preaching of the gospel has the power to actually change hearts inside out, change beliefs, change values, change a worldview, just like that, the power of the gospel. That's how the world will truly change. When it comes to social change, as Christians, of course, we desire it and we'll take it where we can get it. Sure. And also, it's not wrong for Christians to be engaged in direct social change movements. That's, that's fine. But But social reform is simply not the main mission of the church as defined by the Lord himself. 
It just never is. You know, the ancient Romans, for example, they also practiced abortion and infanticide. It's basically abortion after birth. That's what that is. And those were great evils alongside slavery. But again, Christ never put his disciples on a social change mission. He didn't give them a list of social issues and say, go into the world now and change these. Lead a revolution. That's because Christ knew that change would be utterly futile and meaningless if the sinful heart of man that brought about such evil was not changed first and left unaddressed. No, rather, meaningful social change will only come about when hearts are born again and made new. And that only comes one way. It's by the work of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And we trust God's will for the nations, but understand the only hope any nation has at at being changed, at being made right and righteous, is widespread spiritual transformation. Now, where sin reigns, of course, evil and injustice will follow. And the church is meant to fight back against this, but not through the sword. We're not going to pick up the sword, not through protest. We wage war by the power of God, and we use the sword of the Spirit, and that is the gospel. As a side note, though, it's not surprising to find that it was true biblical Christians who were in part behind the great abolition movements of European and later American slavery. The ripple effects of the Second Great Awakening created a new social atmosphere where more and more people were opening their eyes to the injustice of slavery. And it was biblical voices that prevailed, coming from the likes of William Wilberforce, Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley. These biblical thinkers understood the problem of slavery at the deepest level. And what is that? You know, where did the institution of slavery come from? Did it come from God? No, the institution of marriage came from God before the fall, but the institution of slavery did not. That came entirely as a result of mankind's fall into sin. You know, the concept of one man possessing another man It was not part of God's blueprint for the world before the fall, nor will it be a part of his kingdom. That came about purely as a byproduct of sin. And going back even further, scripture teaches that slavery begets slavery. In other words, before man started enslaving man, man himself was enslaved by sin and by Satan. In the fall, the human heart became totally corrupt in its very nature, totally depraved. And so we all became, like Romans 6.20 says, slaves of sin. This is part of Satan's captivity of the human race as well. 2 Timothy 2.26 describes the lost, and it says they are those who have been ensnared by the devil. They're held captive by him to do his will. You're not free. Your will is enslaved to sin and Satan apart from salvation. And so all manner of evil arose as a result of man's bondage to sin and Satan. And, and the human institution of slavery is just, just one example of that. 
It's a reflection of the evil that now dwells inside the heart of man. And that explains why slavery, you know, it's not just an American phenomenon. It's been known to just about every civilization on every continent throughout all of world history up until the past 150 years. How do you solve such a problem, though? You know, social change, activism are, are fine, but you realize they don't go far enough. Yeah, you can win some abolitionism battles, but we'll take them where we can get them. But you understand, no amount of social reform can free man's heart from bondage to sin. And so it's just going to show itself in other ways. But again, this is why only biblical Christianity presents the true answer and the only hope to slavery and all social evils, namely the liberation of man from bondage to sin, and the complete rebirth of the heart through faith in Christ. The only hope for this world comes in the new birth, as Jesus promised. Speaking of Jesus, who was he? He's the son of God who came to the earth as what? As the slave of God. Philippians 2, 7, the person of Jesus emptied himself and he took the form of what? A bondservant, literally doulos, slave. He took the form of a slave. Being made in the likeness of men, Jesus came not to do his own will, but the will of his master. And what was the will of God the Father in sending his son to the world? It was for him to ultimately die a slave's death. Death on the cross. The Father willed that the Son should die on the cross and lay down his life. Why on earth would God want that for his Son? Well, because that was the only way to save us, to redeem us from the slave market of sin. That's what the doctrine of redemption is all about. Redemption is where you pay a price in exchange for something else. When it comes to salvation, redemption has its roots in the Exodus. Because don't forget the Old Testament people of God, Israel, they started out as slaves for 400 years. But God redeemed them. What you have to keep in mind, though, is God didn't redeem them from slavery. He redeemed them from slavery to Pharaoh, but they were still slaves. He just made them slaves of Yahweh. Now they were, they were his slaves. They became God's possession. So what God himself says in Leviticus 25, 55, he says, for the sons of Israel are my servants. Literally the word for slaves. They're my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. In sending Christ, God had in mind a greater exodus, a greater deliverance, this time not from slavery to Egypt, but slavery to sin. But that redemption, that's going to come at a steeper price. Because in sin, we were held not under the power of Pharaoh. That's a small power. But under the power of death. That's the greatest power there is in this world. But Jesus is more powerful. And he laid down his perfect life in exchange for our lives. Bought back to free us. And so 1 Peter 1.19 says, We were redeemed with the precious blood of the lamb, a life for a life, his life for all of our lives. He's that powerful. Jesus redeemed us and freed us from sin and Satan. But as with Israel, 
That doesn't mean we're free. No, we're still slaves. Only now Jesus has made us slaves of God. And that's what Romans 6.22 says. It says, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. But let me tell you, there's no better place to be than in bondage to God. It's not a place of actual subjugation, but of actual freedom. That's the paradox that in bondage to God, we're finally free. We're free from sin and death and corruption and judgment. We're free to enter fullness of joy that God intended. And slavery to God is not to our detriment because he's good. He's not a cruel taskmaster, but a loving heavenly father. He's perfectly just, fair, kind, gracious. He goes so far to call us not slaves, though we are, but sons. And he goes so far as to give us a full share of the eternal inheritance of his son, Christ, just gives that to us. In Christ, our needs are met. We gain everlasting joy. We're blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places. If that's slavery to God, like sign me up. I'll take that. This is why the apostles were not ashamed, but privileged to think of themselves primarily not as apostle or pope or something like that, but slaves of Christ. That's how they identified themselves. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a slave of Christ. James 1.1, 1, 1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, literally slaves, and he sent it to his slave John. In fact, Revelation shows that our status as slaves of God will continue for all eternity. Revelation 22, 3 through 4, describes the eternal state. And it says, the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. And his bondservants, again, literally doulos, slaves. They will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. We will be forever marked by God. He owns us. We will serve him forever. But look, that's only right. He created us. We're just little pieces of clay. But, but what kind of master is this, though, who invites us into his glory? Who calls us, though, sons and daughters, makes us co-heirs, allows us to see his face and to dwell with him forever. All this goes to say this, right after Paul mentions we're freed from sin, we're enslaved to God in Romans 6.22. He says, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's your only hope of being rescued from, from the sin and evil that dwells in your own heart and being made new. And that same gospel is also the only hope of the world at being renewed as well. This world is still lost and bound to sin. This world cannot be lastingly reformed. It can only be transformed. The only power for that is the gospel. So for your part, just take seriously the mission of the church, which is to preach the gospel and to live out 
the gospel. And speaking of that, we'll get us back to our text now in Colossians. I think that'll suffice for an extended biblical background and, and perspective on slavery. This world is corrupt in sin. Slavery is just one manifestation of that. The gospel is the only hope, though, for the world. It's got to be preached. It's got to be lived out. That's what Colossians 3 is all about. If we hope to see the world transformed, we had better be living out that hope and the truth of the gospel in the home. And again, in the ancient world, that even included how slaves and masters relate to one another. And that's why Paul addresses it. So let's see now what he had to say to them back then in Colossians 3, 22 and following. I'm going to read the passage now. You can follow along. Colossians 3, 22. He says, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. And that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, obviously, and we can say, thankfully, this text no longer directly applies to today. But God's word is still profitable. And God chose to use human authors moved by the Holy Spirit to speak his word. That word came in a historical setting and context, but it was imbued with timeless truths meant to guide the church in every age. And so it's only right then for the church to rightly divide scripture and rightly apply it to its own day and age. And that's what we aim to do. Today, it's most common to hear these slave master passages kind of transformed into employer-employee passages. And that is a a fair application of the text. Of course, it's far from a perfect parallel because the ancient slave fell under the total authority of his or her master. They had no will of their own. And such a relationship of complete subjugation does not exist in our society today. That's something we can be thankful for. Nevertheless, the words here still apply in degrees to all who are under the authority of another. All who exist under the authority of another can take these instructions to heart and employ them. So as to show how how new life in Christ just changes all of life. And so today you might find yourself under various types of authority. Employers, shift supervisors, government officials, school teachers, college professors, sports coaches, military commanders. There's a long list. And it's appropriate to derive here application for all of your authority relationships. And you would do well to learn the principles of how God expects all believers in Christ to to relate to authority and to exercise authority. And that's what we will learn from this text. And more specifically, what we're going to find four instructions for our authority relationships. Four instructions for our authority relationships relationships. The text, it's actually rather straightforward and simple, so we'll finish this in time. 
four instructions for our authority relationships. The first being this, obey your authorities. Obey your authorities. You see here, there are two basic imperatives given to slaves, to obey and to work. Verse 22, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Basically, Paul is telling them to fulfill the role put on them in society and in God's providence. He still does not advocate here social revolution. That's going to happen as the gospel penetrates society and the supernatural work of changing hearts plays out, as we noted. But in the meantime, in, in whatever station of life you find yourself in, you're called to honor and obey your authorities. And we find this basic refrain all throughout scripture applied to all believers. God expects all of his people to honor and obey all of their authority figures from parents to government officials to masters of whatever sort. Because God hates rebellion. In the scripture, God does not glorify rebellion against authority. I know in America, we, we love it. It's part of our heritage. We think it noble. And there's a time and a place where we must. But in general, we are to rest in God's control of all things. He's sovereign. He's just. He'll judge the wicked. He'll right all wrongs. He'll deliver his people. We are simply called to, to trust him, do what is right. And that involves submitting to the authorities he's placed over us by his providence. That includes even unreasonable and unjust authorities. Just listen to 1 Peter 2. You can turn if you want to, but 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20, a strong uh, parallel passage where Peter says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respects, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. You know, that passage goes against every bone in our American bodies. You know, if we're harshly treated, it's our instinct to, to fight back. Fight fire with fire, rebel, protest, burn something down. That's called taking matters into your own hands. But you understand that we get no license to do that from Scripture. Just understand that the steady principle, two wrongs don't make a right. Just because you are treated poorly or even unjustly, that's no excuse for you to sin or do evil yourself. It's far better, we learn, for the sake of a clear conscience to just do what is right, respect authority, bear up under sorrows, and trust God to take care of the rest. And he will. That's the attitude he expects from all of his people. Like we read earlier this morning, Romans 12, 21. Right before we're commanded to submit to governing authorities, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To obey and submit to authority is not weak. It's, it's just faith. It just takes faith. You're making a choice to trust God. He will avenge 
He'll right all wrongs. He will execute perfect justice in the end, and he'll deliver his people. You leave that to him. You're called to walk in a path of trust while doing what is right. And that's just the way of the Lord. Lord Jesus modeled the exact same thing for us. And going back to that same 1 Peter 2 passage, next verse, it says in verse 21, since for you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. There it is right there. Entrust yourself to him who judges rightly. And that's faith. That requires a belief that there's a God. He's good. He's in control. He has a plan amidst all this craziness. It will work out according to his will in the end. He will judge. He will reward. As for us, I'll tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to take matters into our own hands. We're not going to fight fire with fire. We're going to trust God to work it out while we simply do what is right. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, but this explains why God is so pleased by his servants who simply trust him and live their lives for him. You need to do the same, and that will lead you to obey your authorities. That's our first instruction, obey your authorities. Second instruction here, obey your authorities in the right way. Just going to build on it a little bit. Obey your authorities in the right way. Now, back in Colossians, you notice though, Paul is far more concerned with how slaves conduct themselves. Go back to verse 22. He says, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, he says. You see that first phrase, not with external service. Your translation might read, not with eye service. And that's the literal rendering of this Greek word. It's the word for eye, ophthalmos, with the word for service, dulea, is eye service. What does that mean? Well, it's talking about doing things only when others are looking. It speaks of those who give the appearance of working hard, but only when they're being watched. I think you know what this is talking about. It's like a group of students, they're goofing off in study hall, but as soon as they see the teacher approaching, they'll pick up their books real fast and pretend like they're studying hard. Or it's that worker in his cubicle enjoying just like a lazy morning browsing the internet, but he sees the boss's door open, he quickly switches over and starts typing away as if he's hard at work. This is eye service, but it's not acceptable to God as, as those under authority. What leads someone to do this? What's the desire to to please man? As he says in verse 22, to please man. That's another compound word. It's the word for please jammed together with the word for man. It's the the man pleaser. It speaks of those who, they're just trying to give off a positive appearance to someone else. That could be to, to garner favor. 
It could be to avoid punishment or whatever reason. They're just, they're far more concerned with what others think of them than what God thinks of them. Thing is though, there's no fooling God. He sees, he knows who you are, what you're doing. At this type of hypocrisy though, dishonors him. And that's the problem. This, this behavior is just not fitting for Christians who've been made new. We should seek to put off all forms of deceit. And this is one of them. We're called to obey our authorities in the right way. And this is not the right way. What is the right way? As Paul says and said, verse 22, with sincerity of heart. Word sincerity just carries the idea of singleness. It means you're doing your work with a single motive. You don't have a double motive, which leads to duplicitous behavior. You have a single motive, pure motive. You're sincere. You're upright. You're doing your work in the right manner for the right reasons. It's coming from the depth of your heart. You're just trying to please the Lord. That's what he adds in verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord rather than for men. You know, the word heartily in the Greek literally means from the soul, but in English, we're more accustomed to saying from the heart. Do your work from your heart. Whatever you're given to do by your earthly masters, do it the right way. That's honestly, sincerely, from the heart, with no other hidden agenda, but just, just to serve the Lord. And take this instruction to heart. In Christ, we're called to honesty and sincerity at the deepest level. Satan is the father of lies. Now that we're new in Christ, we should want nothing more to do with any form of deception. We have but one agenda. It's to honor the Lord and therefore to do what is right. So obey your authorities in the right way. Now, speaking of our desire to honor the Lord. That'll bring us to our third instruction. Obey your authorities for the right reasons. Thirdly, obey your authorities for the right reasons. Notice here, Paul several times harks on the right motive for honest service. Look again at verse 22. Slaves are to obey at the end. He says, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Why should we do this? Why why obey masters, even wicked authorities? Why work hard for them sincerely, even when being mistreated? Overall, as we said, because we trust the Lord, but, but also he mentions because we fear him. This is not the fear of terror or dread. It's the fear of reverence and respect. We're learning here that, that we have one true master, Christ. And this is what God wants from us, what God expects of us. And that should be enough for us. The Lord, after all, has, has total claim on our life after redeeming us. You don't own your life anymore. He, he bought your life. After salvation, the rest of your life is just, it's all belongs to him. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, 20 says you have been bought, redeemed with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And this is part of what that looks like. I respect God and his will 
This is his will. Therefore, I'm going to obey my authorities. Chiefly, Paul reminds us, verse 23, to do our work for the Lord rather than for men. Our mission is not to please man. We will honor our authorities, but our motive is no longer to to win favor, to to garner accolades, to avoid punishment. Our main motive now is just to be pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians 5.9, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. This is what pleases him. It's only right, after all, we're, we're his slaves, as we learn. We're slaves of Christ. And Paul adds in verse 24, it says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. Whom do we really serve? The Lord Christ. And in case you didn't know, the word Lord itself, like Lord Jesus, is just the word for master. It's the same word, kurios. Down in chapter 4, verse 1, he addresses masters. It's the same word, Lord, Lords. But we know Jesus is the Lord of Lords, right? He's our only real master. We work for him. We serve him. Don't forget that. What we do, we do because our our master is in heaven. He's watching and we just want to be pleasing to him. Furthermore, we learn in verse 24 that this same Lord holds a reward in his hand. You know, Matthew 25, Jesus told the parable of the talents where a master entrusts his talents or resources to his slaves to steward while he's gone. And when he returns, do you remember what he says to the faithful slaves? He says, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the reward Jesus brings. We're talking eternal inheritance, salvation. It's a place in the kingdom at the table with God himself. It's stunning though, because in Rome, slaves were legally forbidden from having any type of earthly inheritance. They could not ever have an earthly inheritance. But, but think of this promise. Slaves are given the same inheritance, an equal share in this eternal, everlasting life. The Lord Jesus will award to them on the final day the same reward. And it's the glory of the gospel. At the same time, there are consequences for doing wrong. That's verse 25. He says, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. We know for the true believer, this obviously does not mean the loss of salvation. That's not possible, but it it could mean discipline because the Lord disciplines his legitimate children. He reproves those whom he loves that they might learn sin is not good. And we often bear the consequences of sin in our life. God allows us to taste the bitter fruit that we learn it's not good for us. But take heed and be warned. God God sees those who are rebels in heart, who are man-pleasers, who only render eye service, who are hypocrites, and he will deal with them, and that without partiality. Overall, though, the main point here is to obey your authorities for the right reasons. To obey for the right reasons. And, that, and that's because we're, we're slaves of Christ. 
We live to serve him, his will, to honor him, to bring him glory. And in his goodness, that's what brings us true joy. And I have to say, these are very practical instructions even for today. As we apply them to today. I'm sure you've seen this at work. For example, maybe this has even been you. But those who, who justify dishonesty or poor performance or even outright wrongdoing because their boss is wicked, right? They've got a terrible boss. He's mean, he's unjust, he's unfair. And they feel that justifies them to either slack off or steal from the company or, or just do something wrong in return. We've learned from our text, though, that that's not the case. Even when mistreated, even when not appreciated. And no, we, we still have every reason to obey our authorities, to do what is right, to work hard. And the reason is worship. Like we worship God when we obey God, right? This is his will. This is, these are his commands. They apply to all of us. And so as you heed them, as you obey your authorities, because you trust God, that is worship. This finds favor with God. And this gives you all the motive you ever need to always just do what is right while you obey your authorities for the right reasons. And this same principle transforms all work. You know, the notion that we're ultimately serving the Lord in all that we do, that transforms the most menial tasks into worship. And maybe for work, you dig ditches. Maybe you file paperwork. Maybe you just answer phones. Maybe you hate your job, but don't. First, be content in the work the Lord has given you to do. And then don't think you've got to be a pastor to do God's work. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then your work just, become, just became worship. And let this transform how you view all service under authority. Well, we need to finish up and we have a final instruction. And with this, Paul shifts gears from those under authority to those in authority. And so let's add this final instruction. Number four, be just to those under your authority. Be just to those under your authority. This comes from chapter four, verse one. He says, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Here he turns his attention to lords, masters, those in authority. His message for them is very simple yet poignant. Grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Extend to them what's right. Uphold justice with them and, and be fair. He's talking about even-handed, impartial treatment. This is a call for authorities basically to just be righteous in all your dealings with those under you. Just be righteous. Aristotle said it was irrelevant to talk about justice with slaves because no sense of justice with a personal possession. Things or objects don't know justice. But Paul here defends the rights of slaves. Even though they had no legal rights in ancient Rome, he says that they should receive fairness and justice. 
And that stands in such stark contrast to all other ancient writings about slaves. Most masters are merely instructed with, you know, how to get the most out of your slaves. Very rarely are they ever instructed about the well-being of their slaves. I don't think ever about justice for their slaves. That's the main message Paul has for authorities. And the reason is powerful too. He reminds them, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. And you call yourself Lord. Society calls you Lord, but you're not really Lord. There's only one Lord in heaven, Christ Jesus. And remember, he's watching you too. Like Paul says to masters in Ephesians 6, 9, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, there's no partiality with him. So if you think your position of Lord on earth or boss or manager or CEO, you think that'll get you some favor with God or respect, think again. He's no respecter of persons or positions or titles. All the more so. Those in his providence entrusted with greater power and authority in this life, you're going to be held to greater accountability. What did you do with your privilege, your power, your authority to use it for good or evil, for justice or injustice? God is a perfect judge. He will deal with all perfectly. And today, if you're here, you find yourself to be in any sort of position of authority you would do well to likewise remember that you too are, are just a slave. You're a slave of Christ. He's in heaven. You'll give an account. You better deal with your fellow man justly. Again, with slavery itself, the institution was woven into the very fabric of Rome. Rome would have to fall for slavery to fall. In this short letter, Paul is not going on a crusade. But these simple words are part of what led to the downfall of slavery. Just let the gospel play out in the hearts and consciences of those in authority. And it's going to lead to peace, to reconciliation, to equity, to justice. You know, this fact was already being played out in the early church. You know that Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon as companion letters, written at the same time, delivered at the same time to the same church. He wrote them together. Philemon was directed to Philemon. Who's that? Well, he was a Lord, a master, and a prominent member of the Colossian church. But he had a runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus made his way to Rome. It was a common thing back then for slaves to run away. And what do you know, though? He, he runs into Paul, and then he gets saved. He comes to hear the power of the gospel. He's transformed. He becomes Paul's brother. Then he becomes Paul's co-worker in the gospel. But Paul sent him back. After his salvation, he sent him back to Colossae, back to Philemon. He wanted to hold on to Onesimus because he was so valuable in the work of the ministry, but he had to send him back. We'll find later in chapter 4, verse 9, Onesimus might be the guy who's actually carrying these two letters in his hand back to the Colossian church and to his old master, Philemon. But in that letter, Paul urged Philemon. And it's true, by the law of Rome, Philemon had total authority over Onesimus. 
But things should be different in Christ and among his church. And so Paul appeals to him. He, he wants him to do it of his own will, but Paul appeals to him to release him. Just let him go, free him, return him back to Paul as a partner. And more than that, to embrace him as a brother. Philemon 16 and 17 reads, embrace him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. That is truly revolutionary. Hate only begets more hate, but the love of Christ transforms. And the hate and prejudice that once characterized a soul can be replaced by the love of God. And that's what we hold out to the world in this gospel. And that's what our world still needs. And for our part, we must also live out all the realities of this gospel in the church, in the workplace, here in the home, that all might see this newness we're talking about. So continue to show others in how you relate to your authorities, just the peace and the joy, the reconciliation that comes from the love of Christ. Let the love of Christ shine in all that you do to the glory of God. And let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we so often call you Lord without really thinking and recognizing what we're saying, who you are, what that means, but you are our Lord, our master. You own us. You own us because you bought us. And you bought us at a steep price, your own blood, a life exchanged for our lives. You didn't have to. We didn't deserve it. We deserved the consequences of our sin, a death and a separation from you forever. But in Christ on the cross, you, you exchanged yourself for us, paying for our sin, granting us your righteousness that we might now belong to you, to be slaves of Christ. But in that, Lord, we, we give thanks for that too, because there, there is no better place to be. Because in bondage to you, we find freedom from our own sin, from the flesh, from Satan, from death itself. You call us into everlasting joy and newness of life that will go on forever at your table in the kingdom. This is the glory of the gospel. It makes us new. This is the only hope for this world. Help us to live it out, to preach it and to live it out in our lives, with our families, at the workplace. As we relate to our other authorities in life, may we show them what we're talking about here, that, that all may come to see you and likewise be reconciled. Give us the power to put this into practice. May we hold out in word and deed your truth to the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.